Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. The theme for this month's episode is hunger, and we'll begin by looking at Donald Harper's essay, Gastronomy in Ancient China, which appeared in the food issue of Parabola from winter 1984. The beginnings of Chinese gastronomy, by which I mean the art and science of delicate eating, go back at least to the 3rd century BC, when the oldest extant gastronomic treatise appeared. By that time, clear distinctions had been established between gluttonous indulgence and gastronomic refinement, between the vulgar eating habits of the ignorant and the rarefied diet of certain wise men. The flora, fauna, and minerals of the earth were potential elements, each to be assessed for gastronomic value. Only the most subtle examination might reveal how to utilize these materials, how to eliminate their noxious effects and combine them into dishes which both please the palate and nourish the body. From the time of earliest civilization in China, there was a keen awareness of the effects of food on the body, and the Chinese applied their culinary skills to the preparation of dishes which promoted physical well-being. Although documentation of attitudes toward food is scant in sources earlier than the 3rd century BC, notions of raw, cooked, cold, warm, dry, moist, and the like, were already ingrained in the culinary code of Shang and early Chao times, the 16th to 8th centuries BC. The flowering of gastronomy was in China part of a revolution in spiritual and intellectual ideas, which is documented in the speculative writings of the 5th to 3rd centuries BC. At the core of the teachings expounded in this literature, be it the ethical philosophy of Confucius and Mencius or the naturalism of Chuang Tzu, was the belief that humankind was perfectible. A person needed only to undertake the appropriate program of self-cultivation in order to experience the transformation into a sage. It was inevitable that food should become a matter of the greatest importance in the daily life of a would-be sage, and dietary regimens proliferated which were designed to aid the adept in the cultivation of body, mind, and spirit. Just what kind of diet was deemed most appropriate was a controversial subject, Teachings ascribed to the 5th century BC philosopher Mo Tzu, for example, appear to be directly critical of the trend in eating habits. The sage kings of antiquity, in fashioning the model for drinking and eating, let it be sufficient to fill the empty stomach, sustain the vital vapor, strengthen the limbs, make the ears and eyes sharp and clear, and then desisted. They did not carry to extremes the blending of the five tastes or the harmonizing of fragrant aromas. They did not import rare oddities and marvelous substances from distant realms. Those dietary niceties, which, according to Motsu, the legendary kings did not practice, were of course the very practices being promoted in contemporary gastronomic circles. The antithesis to the utilitarian attitude toward food professed by Motsu and the oldest manifesto of gastronomy is an essay in the Lu Shi Chun Chu, or Spring and Autumn of Xir Lu, a compendium of speculative ideas compiled in the second half of the 3rd century BC. The essay is entitled Pen Wei, or Seeking the Root of Taste. The core of the essay provides a counterstatement to Motsu's dicta on eating, and the practices he criticizes may be the very ones espoused by the authors of Seeking the Root of Taste. There is also evidence of the physiological and therapeutic orientation of ancient dietary practices in this essay, 
For gastronomic arts were fundamentally concerned with the effects of food on a person's physical well-being, not simply with the pursuit of culinary delight for its own sake. Food was considered to belong to the resources of materia medica. The theory and technique of food preparation paralleled pharmacy. The cook and pharmacist practiced a similar art. This dual role is apparent in the figure of Yi Yin, the master of gastronomy, in seeking the root of taste. Yi Yin was a cook whose accomplishments became known to King Tang, the founder of the House of Shang in the mid-2nd millennium BC. King Tang recognized Yi Yin's virtue, sought him out, and made Yi Yin his chief advisor. The legend of Yi Yin the cook is recorded elsewhere in early literature, how he first delighted Tang with his culinary expertise, and then rose to assist the king in establishing the Shang dynasty. Another version of the Yi Yin legend emphasizes his knowledge of drugs. According to later tradition, Ian was the first cook of herbal medicine, for he was the creator of medicinal decoctions. It is in the guise of Ian's inaugural lecture to King Tang that the gastronomic theory of seeking the root of taste is presented. Ian delighted Tang with a teaching on the culminant taste. Tang said, Can this be practiced? Ian responded, My lord's domain is small and will not suffice to provide for it. Become the son of heaven, and then it can be provided for. Now, of the three groups of creatures, the water dwellers have a rank fishiness, the carnivores are rancid, and the herbivores are malodorous. Stinking and foul, they are still excellent, and each has its use. At the root of all tastes, water is primordial. Among the five tastes and three materials, and the nine simmerings and nine transformations, fire serves as the regulator. At times brisk and at times slow, fire eliminates fishiness, removes rancidness, and eradicates malodorousness. It must be done so that the ingredients are conquered without losing their inherent qualities. From the outset, Ian makes it clear that only the supreme individual ordained by heaven as sun, the king by divine right, can expect to successfully practice it. The image of the true king was a common trope for the cultivation of the sage in the ancient speculative writings, and thus the promise of initiation to gastronomic secrets for those who adopt the teaching is implicit. In the first part of the teaching, Ian sets out the principles of cooking. Water and fire are the primary forces at work in cooking. Water is the elemental liquid in which all tastes are resolved. Fire acts to modulate the cooking process so that the food is brought to the ideal condition of maturation. What transpires in the cooking pot is an imitation of the effects of moisture and heat in nature, a notion also evident in the word shu, which in ancient usage denoted both properly cooked food and perfect ripeness for grain, fruits, and vegetables. However, the correlation with natural processes involved a more complex symbolism which was still being elaborated in the 3rd century BC. Gradually evolving as the Chinese sought to penetrate the mysterious operation of the world, the concept of yin and yang dualism and of five actions provided the base for a symbolic theory of correspondence which meshed the manifold phenomena of the world into a single fabric. Water and fire were the first of the five actions to emerge in the cosmic creation according to the cosmogenic sequence of the five actions, as established in sources earlier than the 3rd century BC. The sequence is water, fire, wood, metal, earth. 
thus declaring water to be primordial accords to water the same role in cooking as in the original creation. And the fire that arose after water is present in the fire burning in every stove. Unlike classical Greek theories of the elements in nature, the Chinese theory of the five actions associated water, fire, wood, metal, and earth with qualities native to their respective substances and with various cyclical processes in nature. All aspects of human existence were susceptible to analysis in terms of these qualities and cycles. By the 3rd century BC, yin-yang and five-action theories were well-developed in astrology and calendrics, serving to correlate celestial motions and seasonal passages with the microcosmic human realm below. They were also being applied in physiological speculations, although it was another few centuries before the model of the human body based on yin-yang and five-action theories was formalized in Chinese medicine. Reference to the five tastes in Ian's teaching constitutes early witness to the importance of five-action theories in the analysis of foodstuffs. The tastes as correlated with the actions are salty water, bitter fire, sour wood, acrid metal, and sweet earth. The purpose of identifying the tastes is to know the ingredients and proportions, which will result in a perfectly balanced dish. While fire is the chief actor among the three materials, water, fire, and the wood, which is the fuel, nine simmerings, and nine transformations, if the tastes of the ingredients are not properly chosen, then the dish will fail. The concern for the taste of ingredients was shared by pharmacy. In the oldest Materia Medica, the taste of a drug according to the five-fold schema is standard information. The individual drugs used in a compound are referred to as the tastes of the compound. The very notion of a culminant taste in gastronomy is premised upon seeking the supreme harmonization of the tastes of the ingredients. And this is the subject taken up by Yin in the second part of the teaching. In the business of harmonious blending, one must make use of the sweet, sour, bitter, acrid, and salty. Whether things are to be added earlier or later, and in what amounts, their balancing is very subtle, and each thing has its own characteristics. The transformation which occurs in the cauldron is quintessential and wondrous, subtle and delicate. The mouth cannot express it in words, the mind cannot fix upon an analogy. It is like the subtlety of archery and horsemanship, the transformation of yin and yang, or the calculations of the four seasons. Thus it is long-lasting, yet does not spoil, thoroughly cooked, yet not mushy, sweet, yet not cloying, sour, yet not overpoweringly so, salty, yet not deadening, acrid, yet not caustic, mild, yet not insipid, unctuous, yet not unpalatable. What better choice of a spokesman could have been made than Yi Yin to counter the opinion voiced by Mo Tzu that the sage kings of antiquity did not carry to extremes the blending of the five tastes or the harmonizing of fragrant aromas? Orchestration is the essence of fine food. Selection of ingredients for taste, correct proportions, and timing are the three factors noted by Yi Yin in achieving the perfect medley. The cook who undertakes this enterprise oversees a wondrous transformation for which the shooting of an arrow to strike a distant target and the operation of yin and yang in the world are the closest approximations. It is important to appreciate the emphasis on harmonization and blending in Yin's gastronomical model, which is a characteristic of Chinese cuisine to this day. Gastronomy was a way of maintaining balance through the creation of dishes which were themselves perfectly balanced. 
In terms of theory and practice, there was little difference between the gastronomer cook and the pharmacist. The former applied his knowledge of aliments to healthful nutrition on a normal daily basis. The latter, whose stock of drugs included the cook's foodstuffs, blended his potions to deal with medical crises. In the third part of the teaching, Yi Yin turns to a consideration of the ingredients required by one who hopes to realize the culminant taste. Naturally, the refined diet of which he speaks is not prepared from the standard comestibles in the ancient larder. Each item named represents a superlative specimen in its category. Many are the exotic products of distant regions known only in legendary geography, truly unobtainable, save by the one son of heaven, the paragon of gastronomers. Is this not the very predilection for imported marvels criticized by Motu? Some are monsters and others magical plants which stirred the imagination of ancient Chinese and defy the attempts of modern scholars to affix prosaic identifications to them. Ian's gastronomic lecture to King Tang concludes with an admonition. One who does not first become the son of heaven cannot provide for it. One cannot become the son of heaven by force. One must first realize the way. The way lies in dispensing with other things and concentrating on the self. Having perfected the self, one becomes the son of heaven. When one becomes son of heaven, then the culminant taste is provided for. Thus scrutinizing what is near is the way to know of what is distant. Perfecting the self is the way to perfect others. Such is the essence of the way of the sage king. What use indeed to engage in many futile exertions? The role that food and diet was to play in early Chinese speculations on the issue of spiritual and physical cultivation was spurred by ideas concerning the nature of qi, or vital vapor, an archaic word in the Chinese language connoting steamy, vaporous emanations. By the 5th century BC, qi had come to be regarded as the stuff of life. The word itself was composed of this vital vapor, which all things generated in the world likewise possessed. Both the material body and the spirit consisted of qi, and human life depended upon maintaining the store received at birth. Physical strength and the sharpness of the senses resulted from its circulation through the body. Food-possessed qi, which underwent transformation when ingested and supplemented the supply of vital vapor in the body. The idea that people relied on this supply, which might grow or dwindle depending on how they lived their life, was a generally accepted principle. It is evident, for example, in Motsu's belief that people should eat only enough to fill the empty stomach, sustain the vital vapor, strengthen the limbs, make the ears and eyes sharp and clear, and then desist. If all substances introduced into the body were believed to affect the body's supply of vital vapor, it followed that artful eating might so enrich a person's store that the vigor of youth might be retained, life itself might be prolonged indefinitely. Such were the hopes raised by gastronomic cultivation. This kind of thinking was associated most closely with practices which early sources refer to as nurturing life or yang sheng. Part of the reason for their sometimes hostile reception among certain moral philosophers lay in the emphasis which the practitioners of nurturing life placed on the positive value of human desires. Rather than insisting that the path to spiritual and physical perfection necessitated the repression of the appetite for food and sex, nurturing life philosophy vaunted the benefits of these desires. The pleasures of the table and the boudoir were both exploited for the purpose of self-cultivation. 
Their practices were, were always directed toward a higher goal, the enhancement of vitality and life, an indulgence of the passion for food and sex was strongly warned against. Careless indulgence could only lead to disease and death. The discovery of valuable aliments, the study of the nutritional properties of food based on the theories of Qin, Yin, and Yang, and the five actions, and cookery, what Yin calls the transformation which occurs in the cauldron, these were the special concerns of alimentation and the practice of nurturing life, which deserve the title of gastronomy. Gastronomy was, of course, one facet among many of the nurturing life philosophy, which embraced pharmacy, alchemy, therapeutic exercise, and breath cultivation in the pursuit of a material, physical immortality. The magical products which Ian tantalizingly names for King Tong may have elicited thoughts of wondrous elixirs in the minds of eager adepts. For some believers, the supreme transformation was achievable only through the alchemical elixir or through diets which rejected all forms of ordinary food. But for anyone who accepted a daily diet based on the available foods, nurturing life gastronomy offered a model for eating habits. Because this is Parabola Magazine, we'll turn now to a more spiritual kind of hunger uh, and look at an essay by Margaret Delaney, The Anonymous Ones. There is a tribe of South American Indians, indigenous to the mountains of Colombia, that the Spanish never managed to conquer. They are called the Kogi, and over the years they have traveled farther and farther up into the mountains, where they remain untouched by their Hispanic neighbors. They are secretive and isolated by nature, and until recently have maintained a policy of unblemished anonymity. They refer to themselves as the Elder Brothers, and consider the people of the industrialized world their younger siblings. Only recently have they broken their silence in order to warn us that we may be very close to destroying our planet. They claim to be able to communicate telepathically with other members of their population on other distant mountains, an innate ability that they have been practicing for centuries. The Kogi's powers of telepathy are most pronounced among their spiritual leaders, wise ones who are carefully singled out early in life and raised to be spiritual guides for the community. These chosen elders say that there is a council of souls from around the world with whom they regularly consult with their thoughts. And it is the Kogi, along with this coalition of connected souls, who are hoping to reach out to the younger brothers, those of us who are busily causing the destruction of our planet, to beg us to turn the situation around. The theosophists from the turn of the last century believed in a similar anonymous brotherhood of spirits that was responsible for the progress of love and goodwill for the world. This was a sort of fellowship of adepts, on earth and in the hereafter, who prayed and otherwise aided in the development of the human race. I am intrigued by this notion, partly because of the romance of it. Imagine meeting one of these enlightened souls, but also because of what it implies about our collective thoughts and prayers. It gives hope to those of us who wish to be of use, through prayer, to the advancement of love and harmony for our earthly home. We spend so much time feeling small and unequal to the task of helping to solve the issues that face us here. We despair of having any effect on the huge problems, 
wars, world hunger, the poisoning of this beautiful planet? How can our tiny efforts, our minuscule prayers help? At the same time, we are embarrassed to pray for our small concerns, our petty wishes, finding it difficult to believe that the great God who watches over all the planets, the solar systems, the galaxies, and the billions would have time to listen to our tiny domestic concerns. Today, I shamelessly prayed for peace in the Middle East and the return of my missing cat. I do believe that both appeals were heard, and I trust that they are both important to the great spirit that watches over this world. His eyes upon the sparrow, Jesus taught, and I have to believe him. Maybe we should let God be the judge of the size requirements of an acceptable prayer. Our own ideas are bound to be all out of proportion and might hinder a worthy prayer from being released and heard. If we fear we are offering a speck of prayer to knock down an obstacle of mountainous proportions, such as a boiling pot of hatred that looks to be developing into an all-out war, we can take comfort in the idea that our prayers are joining those of countless others to make an anonymous global appeal that might astound us if we could see it. As if all of our prayers were so many doves released into the heavens and this soaring flock somewhere in the billions were flying in perfect formation, creating enormous, gorgeous images of peace for all the world to believe in. Recently, in my morning meditation in the woods, I have tried to imagine that I am joining a group of concerned, anonymous souls in prayer. I envision them to be both incarnated and in the spirit world, both inside of time and outside it. Our prayers, no matter how simply or grandly expressed, fly off together and are delivered in the most beautiful shapes, extraordinary visions of what the world could look like in perfect peace, in loving harmony with our good Mother Earth. I have a fantasy of one day receiving a summons to meet my anonymous prayer alliance. The communication will arrive while I am on my walk in the woods. It might fall from the sky with its message impressed on the soft side of a leaf. It will direct me to travel to Switzerland or Peru or somewhere else with an impressive mountain range. My orders will be to board a train on a specific day at a certain time and not to disembark until I have arrived at the final station. I follow my directions carefully, traveling up into the mountains, with the train stopping at increasingly more remote outposts until it eventually arrives at the second-to-last station deep in the hinterlands, and every passenger departs but me. The conductor walks past and smiles as if he were in on a delicious secret. When I arrive at the station, I step out onto the platform to discover that no one is there, no human that is, only a profoundly handsome dog, large and thick-coated with a gentle nobility. He watches me with considerable intensity. After several moments, he turns away, turns back to look at me, and then turns again and begins to walk away. I follow him. He leads me along a gentle path through the mountains, with views of rich, densely wooded valleys on either side. We walk for some time. It is mild summer and exquisitely lovely. Eventually, we come upon a view of a delicate, round lake surrounded by the most inviting little cabins. I can see small groups of gentle people gathering and talking in soft tones, punctuated by occasional eruptions of joyous laughter. They are waiting for someone, expectant, searching the hills with their eyes. I run down to greet them, all of them strangely familiar but unknown to me on earth. 
They speak my name as if it were an answered prayer. I will not tell of what we say to each other. It's too private, too sacred. But by the time I depart from this place, I am filled with the conviction that the power of our collected prayers can and eventually will make a paradise of this grieving planet. We would love to have you join us someday. We gather whenever one of us is praying, so you can't very well miss us. Our numbers shift and change, but we always have just enough to be heard. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you will find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. Remember that thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Helder Kamara, who said, When I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why the poor have no food, they call me a communist. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>